1: Brian caram
0: Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian caram and today it's a pleasure to have with us Lucian Truscott. And uh, Lucian, you may or may not know, but I I, I love his work uh, uh, with The Village Voice. He's a columnist at Salon.com. has written five books. Is that right, Lucian? Five? Yeah. And uh, and it's going to talk to us a little bit about the intersection of military and journalism. So stick around. We'll be right back.
1: Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page,
0: JATQ Podcast. For- That's JATQ Podcast. Again, that's at J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Asked the Question. I am your host, Brian Caram, And with me today is author, reporter, journalist. You know, I, I, I hate saying journalist, Lucian, because I, when I was a kid, a journalist was a, a reporter that was out of work. So I'll just go with, with a writer, author, reporter, uh, Lucian Truscott, uh, Lucian, I, I guess what I I, I want to start out asking you is, I mean, you have a family, a, a background in the military, and yet you ended up as a as a writer. How did that happen?
2: Well, um, well, I was going first I was gonna tell you now is that what I'm doing now. The journalism I'm doing now is on uh, Salon, but also Substack. I've got a column on Substack. Oh, plug away, I, um, yeah. You write
0: daily for Substack, right?
2: Yeah, it's uh, com. But uh, yeah, I write daily for Substack, and um, in fact, I just finished a column right now. But but, um,
0: what do you like to write about today? I, I read a lot of your stuff at Solana and- I
2: wrote about I, I wrote about that document that they uncovered today. Uh, Politico got a hold of it that so-called executive order written on December 16th that Trump was, you know, contemplating signing, I guess, December, December 16th, 2020. And it, it's virtually a, um, the political story doesn't say it, but the way I read it is it's it's a plan for a military coup. I mean, it's a it's an order that authorizes the Secretary of Defense to seize, as far as I read it, every voting machine and all voting records, electronic paper and otherwise in all 50 states and the territories of the United States and then spend 60 days so-called analyzing and assessing um, what they've got. Now, the military is supposed to do this. The Secretary of Defense in, in the order is authorized to federalize the National Guard in all the states to help uh, accomplish this. I mean, it's a military coup. It's a takeover of uh, the election infrastructure in the United States. I can't think of anything that's more military coup than having the the United States Army seizing all of our election material, uh, machinery, paperwork, everything. I mean, the only thing the order doesn't authorize them to seize is the election officials themselves. But um, the order also authorizes the setting up of of a special counsel to prosecute people. So really what Trump was contemplating on December the 16th, 2020 was, seizing the electoral infrastructure of the United States and then indicting and throwing in jail anybody that opposed him.
0: Well, he already tried that with me. He um, said three, three times. I, I asked him, it was back in September win, lose, or draw. Would you, you accept a peaceful transfer of power? And he wouldn't do it. Is, Ed, you've, you've been around for a while covering this stuff. Have you ever seen anything as frightening as Donald Trump?
2: I thought, Nick, I covered Watergate. I spent a year of my life on the Watergate story. My corner of Watergate was the B.B. Rebozo corner. Oh, yeah. And I nailed down B.B. as my, you know, area to take a look at. But um, I, I thought Nixon was scary. I mean, uh, I was, I, I had a, uh, a, an FBI detail following me every time I went to Miami which was numerous times and um, I thought Nixon was scary but Trump is uh, Trump makes Nixon look like uh, I don't know you know Ronald Reagan or something I mean he's
0: well, he was another scary one but I, I, <laughs>
2: not, like, not like this I mean it, oh, you're you, know, right. this, you have to get a hold of this if you go to Politico you can they've yeah, got I've a, read it. they've got the the order in there and it's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, it's frightening on many levels i mean um could you ever imagine well would your grandfather would your father any of them stand for a military takeover of the united states after what they went through to protect the united states can you imagine
2: no they no of course they, they wouldn't and and um i don't think that the that the generals that are currently running the military um Millie and the rest of them would do it either. I mean, I, I think that we saw in 2020, after what happened at Lafayette Park, when Milley and all the service chiefs issued their letters to the active duty soldiers and reservists uh, saying, you know, we're we're gonna stay out of politics and stay out of this election. I think we saw. Uh, what their attitude was I mean I was I was pretty impressed by that I, don't, I can't say I was terribly surprised but I was impressed by the way they did that
0: what uh, well let me ask you this in and since the name of the show is just ask the question uh, I'll just ask it as bluntly as possible do you think that Donald Trump um, intends to continue a, a coup attempt in the United States are you concerned about it?
2: Yeah, I am. Because um, I think that if he gets himself, or if he runs for election, I think that the, the Republican Party, not just Trump, but the entire Republican Party has made it absolutely clear that they are not going to accept any kind of victory by by a Democratic candidate. And I'm beginning to think that that's, gonna, that's trickling down to Congressional races and so forth. I don't know whether state you local saw. As well. Yeah, local. I don't know whether you saw a state senator in some state recently. I think it was Florida. There was a special election for a state Senate seat and a, a Democratic woman won it by 60 points, 60 points. And um, the Republican guy refused to concede in his contesting the election. I mean, it's just astounding. I, I, I don't even think that 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 you would have to to win a uh, uh, a Democratic House race or a or a Senate race in a, a U.S. Senate race in a state in 2022 or 2024 for these people to not just contest the election but try to steal it by reversing it. You know, I I, I just. The part of this that really drops my jaw is the, um, you know, the authoritarian part. Yeah. The the fascist part of it. I won't even say anti-democratic. I mean, it's just flat out authoritarian. And, um, that's the part that really amazes me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the gloves have come off. They've told us who they are in no uncertain terms. They won't accept voters rights. They won't accept, uh anything other than control illegitimate control yeah. and, and and I look at this and one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you that here on the show is because and not only but, but you understand the history of the military and for those and, and 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 what the military has done to support democracy not not you know try to overthrow democracy and you know I'll bring some of our viewers up to 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 speed with the fact that you know and and I'll, and if you feel uncomfortable talking about it, just let me know. But your your grandfather, of course, served in World War II, um, and was I think what Third Infantry Division, and
2: he commanded the Third Infantry. He was the only general during the war to command a division, a corps, and two armies. So yeah. he commanded the Third Infantry Division, the Sixth Corps. The Fifth Army and the Seventh Army, and after the war, he commanded the Third Army in Bavaria. After he relieved Patton of the Third Army, and, but, um, and he, so under he commanded. He, he commanded in excess of uh, a million soldiers during during World War Two.
0: And you know, for those of you who've seen the movie Patton, he was he was uh, the the character.
2: Your de- your grandfather was featured in that movie. And yeah, that that scene is that scene came right out of my grandfather's memoir, Command missions. And uh, the scene is therefore completely accurate. I mean, uh,
0: describe set the scene. Tell, show me about, tell me about the scene
2: Well, in the scene, Patton was uh, demanding that that my grandfather launched a ground assault of the next little town up the Sicilian coast from where they were um, without the uh, you know without the ground being prepared by a naval bombardment or artillery or anything and and my grandfather said basically well you know that's a recipe for slaughter and uh, you know the you can't you know you can't launch an assault like that on a on a coastal area and, into all the defenses the Germans had set up, without you know preparing the the uh, preparing the zone with artillery, and in that case they would they would have been able to use a naval bombardment because it was a coastal city. And Patton said he didn't give a damn if my grandfather wouldn't do it; he'd find somebody who would. My grandfather said, "Well, okay." And what they did was they had to go up over a. A mountain range. Sicily is quite mountainous and so grandpa who had been in the cavalry uh, was able to uh, take local uh, donkeys and mules that they commandeered from the local populace. In those days in the 1940s there would have been a lot of donkeys and mules in Sicily because Sicily was a very poor part of Italy with not very much uh, not very many cars and trucks and so forth. So they commandeered a bunch of donkeys and uh, and uh, mules. And and uh, he had a bunch of guys in the 3rd Infantry Division, which he was then commanding, who served in the cavalry with him and they knew how to pack animals. So they packed, uh, pack, actually call them pack-outs or 75-millimeters. Howitzers, small howitzers, onto these mules, and uh, the mu- used the mules to go up the side of these mountains, and they got to the tops of the mountains and set up the 75 millimeter howitzers, and they prepared the ground themselves with their own r- artillery. Uh, you know, Grandpa wasn't going to launch an attack against entrenched German defenses without. Artillery support. So he created his own. Anyway, um, yeah, he, you know, like when I was growing up, he was alive and I spent my summers with him. And um, he was an extraordinary character and an extraordinary figure in my life. He, he never graduated from the 10th grade uh, and yet he became a four-star general. And um, when he died, uh, De Gaulle attended his funeral I mean. He was, you know, he was an extraordinary person. And uh, How old
0: were you when he died?
2: I was 18. I was at West, I had just gotten to West Point was in September of 65. And, uh, and, but I spent my summers with him and my grandmother when I was growing up. And it was uh, informative, to say the least. I mean, he was... <laughs> An amazing person. I mean, you know, and I used to have to, uh, on Friday and in those days in the, in the sixties, early sixties, he was a deputy director of the CIA. And I didn't know this as a boy, but, uh, but I, I realized I I was told he worked at the state department, but on Friday afternoons, um, he used to have this sort of salon at his house on a porch in uh, in uh, Alexandria. And, and all these guys would come over for martinis. And some of the guys who came over included Richard Helms and generals that he served with in World War II. and wow. And... Uh, and my job was to put on a pair of khakis and a starched white shirt and sit on a stiff back dining room chair just inside the door to the porch and wait for him to bellow at me to come out there and get another pitcher of martinis for him.
0: <laughs> oh, and, you uh, grew up in my family, I see. That's a, <laughs> yeah, sounds, my, uh, sounds so like would, my grandfather. I
2: would, I would trot out onto the porch where this array of major figures were sitting and get the picture and go fill it up with martinis and then take it back and then take my seat on the dining room chair again. And uh, so I, I realized years later what he was doing because the house was not air conditioned. You know, it was 61, 62. And that the door between the, the screen porch and the dining room was open. And uh, what he was doing was letting me sit there and listen. Nice. I could hear every word they said. Not that I can remember a great deal of what they said. I do know that they were, even in those days, in the early 60s, they were already talking about what a disaster Vietnam would be if they got involved in in Asia. All these guys were adamantly opposed to any kind of war whatsoever in any area of Asia including vietnam but um
0: politicians got us know, there what? anyway huh the politicians got us there anyway
2: yeah. yeah well what was
0: his impression of Patton? did he did he ever tell you
2: they were friends they were friends their their entire lives in the army because they were both in the in the cavalry yeah and um, and they were close friends i mean they were close together in rank I think they were majors together at Fort Leavenworth in the 30s, and uh, my grandmother was very good friends with Patton's wife, and Grandpa was friends with Patton, and uh, he admired Patton a great deal. And he he um, he told my grandmother, uh, and he wrote in his in his um, memoir that um, that the day he. Uh, Eisenhower ordered him to go from uh, Bonn, I think, or Berlin, down to uh, Munich and relieve Patton of the command of the Third Army in September of 1945 because Patton had refused to denazify Bavaria. Patton was the commander of the Third Army and he was military governor of and um, and he had refused Eisenhower's order to denazify uh, Bavaria and he was holding the displaced persons uh, who were Jewish who came out of the camps like uh, Dachau which was right there like 10 miles outside of Munich. He was holding them in conditions that were similar to the conditions they'd been found in in the deep in the in the uh, concentration camps and uh, and Eisenhower told him to improve the conditions in the displaced persons camps and get rid of all the Nazis in Bavaria and, and Patton refused. So he sent my grandfather down there to relieve him and he relieved him and he took over command of the third army and, and he spent next year in charge of the DP camps in Bavaria. Which is a very, very interesting part of our history, and very, very, very little written about.
0: Why is that? And what's in, what should we know about it that hasn't been written?
2: Well, um, you know, it there were two there were two things going on in Bavaria. One was the Nuremberg war crimes trials, which is in Bavaria and also the Munich war crimes trials that are little known about, but but took place. Grandpa was the court-martial convening authority for both of those trials. And, um, and so they were trying uh, the famous war criminals of the Nazi hierarchy in Nuremberg, and then Grandpa in Munich tried camp guards and camp commanders and that sort of level of Nazi down there, and um, they executed a lot of them. Wow! And they, um, you know, they there wasn't a great deal of press attention. There wasn't any press attention on that, on those trials, and on what they were doing in in mm-hmm. um, Munich. So they could pretty much do what they wanted, and they just executed a bunch of concentration camp guards and. Commanders, but um, the other thing that that was going on, of course, was resettling something like twelve or fourteen million displaced persons that the Nazis had moved all around Europe. That not they had not only that they uh, taken the Jews and put them in concentration camps and forced labor camps and so forth, but they had taken all kinds of citizens of various countries, Poland and Czechoslovakia and Hungary and everything else, and just move them around wherever they want to, wanted them or needed them to work in factories or mines or whatever. So after the war, about 12 million of them needed to get back to their to their um, uh, home countries. And of course, there was very little infrastructure in Germany, most of it had been destroyed during the war. Not so much down in Bavaria, which is why they set up the DP camps down there because the German um, concerns or army posts were intact. And grandpa seized all the German army posts in that whole area, including Oberammergau where I lived as a boy in the fifties and Garmisch-Parkenkirchen, which is famous as the site of the uh, 56 olympics and it's uh, it's still used as a recreation area for the United States army and the, the military because it's still owned the mil- you know the facilities there are still owned by the United States
0: and that's where nazism began right bavaria
2: yeah and well, why didn't Nick- bavaria was a terrible place i mean even in the 50s when i was there as a boy You know, those Germans in Oberammergau—they knew the name Truscott because my grandfather had seized the army post at at at, um, Oberammergau and had thrown the local Nazis all from all those little villages around there in jail. (laughs) (laughs) Why didn't uh, uh, denazified denazified Bavaria? He did what what Patton wouldn't do. Why wouldn't Patton do that? He was an anti-Semite. Oh, well, that would explain that. He was a virulent, virulent anti-Semite. And I don't think that that had much of an effect in the 20s and the 30s when they were in the peacetime military and the cavalry, because quite frankly, there probably weren't a lot of Jews around in, in the military. And so I don't think that that was a major issue, but it certainly became an issue after the war when it. You know when when they liberated Dachau and the other concentration camps, and and the Jews that were liberated, there were about two hundred and fifty thousand Jews still alive for, that they that they brought from the camps to Bavaria, and 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 my grandfather put them in um, you know camp facilities that were decent and heated and with you know they didn't have blankets or anything they didn't have food they they didn't have anything and and grandpa ordered that um uh something like 15 rabbis were were brought over from the united states um and given quick commissions into the military so that the jewish people in the in, the, in these uh, displaced person camps had rabbis because most of the rabbis had been killed in Europe, not just Germany, but all over Europe. Of course, every synagogue had been destroyed. Right. And of, the, other, the other thing that grandpa did that was really extraordinary and I'm very, very proud of was to hold the first Seder uh, that was held in Europe since the 1930s in um in the spring of nineteen forty-six when um and they held it in Munich. Wow and there were no synagogues to hold it. So grandpa seized the original beer hall where Hitler had held his first rally the yeah. in the twenties. The the in the twenties and they held the the Seder Which went on for something like three days, so all the Jews who wanted to attend it from the from the displaced persons camps could come to the seder, and um, they held it in this beer hall that Hitler had used. And um, and uh, well, and
0: the Third Army, and I think your father or your grandfather was involved in this when. The Germans tried to say this didn't happen. It was the Third Army and other armies in in the U.S. that forced residents in Germany to view the the, uh, uh, Dachau and the other concentration camps so they couldn't deny that it had happened.
2: Not only that, the Third Army um, took photographs of of, all the armies did, but the Third Army in Bavaria photographed Dachau extensively. I grew up at Grandpa's house with this enormous um, album of pictures of the Dachau camp that had been taken right after they liberated it, and they and he also published a a book called Dachau Diary that was a book of photographs of Dachau and. Um, and photographs that they had seized from the Germans and, and it was uh, the, the the language in it was written by um, a Dachau inmate who had copied down a diary on toilet paper and hidden it away that they Wow, where's the, uh,
0: where are the photos Mm -hmm. in that now? Are they
2: in National Archives or I guess, I mean, we had a copy of it in grandpa's, in grandpa's uh, library. And my brother and I used to sit there and, and read it. And so I grew up with, you know, you wanted to know originally when you contacted me about how my military background affected, affects my journalism and yes. so forth. And I think you can hear it. I grew up with all this history. I mean, it was right there in front of me. And and of course, I lived as an army brat. I lived in Germany from 55 to 58 at a time when the Germans really had not accepted the fact that they lost that war. I'm telling you, they hadn't accepted it. My brother and I got in fights with German kids constantly, whose parents basically sent them out to beat up American children because they, they were inculcated in them with this hatred of Americans and with this idea that that the war had been lost because of the Jews or something. I, I never really quite understood it, except that the whole nation of Germany was in denial. But, that, um,
0: are there any parallels to today's politics in the United States?
2: Well, um, I think not not in the way that I think that we're going to have you know concentration camps or any kind of paranoid stuff like that but I do think that the parallels are really to not to the the World War II or the years after the war but the years before the war when the German public um, fell under the spell of Hitler uh, because he, you know, there was like a national delusion in Germany that that you know Hitler blamed everything that was wrong in Germany, everything that had happened in Germany, how they lost World War One and their economic pains and struggles and everything on Jews, and um, I think that something of the same thing has happened in this country with Trump convincing um you know a large segment of uh, i guess however many close to 70 million votes he got a large segment of the population of this country that it's all the fault of the democrats you know in in some way and and i think that that's what we're seeing with the the idea that no republican has ever or they're saying they're never again going to accept a, a victory uh, in an election by a Democrat. And do they you, don't recognize the legitimacy of another political party. Do you? And think that Germany, that's going to
0: lead to violence?
2: It, it might. I, I I mean, we already saw what could happen on January the first of last year, and uh, I wrote a six, call yeah. Call that said, I don't think that we're going to have a civil war because I think civil wars are are too hard. Is what yeah. I said. It's it's difficult to, you know. I mean, I was in the army. I grew up around the army. I grew up in the army. It's difficult to learn soldiering. It's difficult to learn warfare. I mean, it's not, you don't just... However, terrorism and violence
0: are easy to learn.
2: Yeah, but you, you know, you don't just take a gun and put on some clown-like camo stuff you buy at Walmart and go out and, you know, and become a warrior. I mean, it's the, the training and, and the discipline and everything that's necessary to actually fight a war isn't there among these people that think uh, like the ones that thought on january the first the ones you saw in all those clown-like outfits and everything
0: i was there those
2: guys think they're warriors but they're not
0: yeah no i i liken them to the nfl weekend warriors the guys who take their shirts off and paint their face and but when i was there i saw though there were some hard cases that were trying to stir up violence and then kind of that groupthink mentality the others that weren't as violent became violent when goaded on by those who wanted it to be violent including the president Rudy Giuliani and the two interchangeable sons who whipped up and fomented the crowd and tried to to get them to push forward I think if there's a if there's a, an overthrow of the government it will come as you pointed out when we began this conversation with uh, the the um, uncovering of it today of that memo that they would try to seize things with a little bit of violence and a lot of chicanery and try to do it that way.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I I think that I've sort of sworn off speculating about this stuff at this point.
0: It's now. hard to yeah you know, one
2: column about this idea about a civil war and i really don't intend to write any more about it and unless and until it would it would start to happen but i've sort of sworn off speculating about it uh, the you know i mean i think that you know what what has to be done is um organizing and mobilizing you know? I mean, it's, you know, and educating and, and, and and
0: educating and winning elections. Yeah, well, we're going uh, to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the military. And I, I, I've got to ask you about Stonewall. One of the first things you cover for the Village Voice. So stick okay. around. We'll be right back.
1: Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you and we need your help. Seriously, as you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve.
0: Hi, we're back. It's just asked a question, and I, I'm enjoying this conversation a lot, Lucian. Uh, Lucian Truscott, who's a, a journalist, and uh, the, and uh, grandfather was was uh, was a general in, in uh, World War II. And your your father was also a member of the military, as as you were. You come from a a long line of military people. <laughs> yeah. How did you become a writer? When did you decide that you wanted to not be in the military and wanted to be a reporter?
2: Well, it's kind of a funny story. uh, I was at West Point. I entered West Point in 1965. And West Point is 50 miles from New York City. Mm -hmm. So when cadets got out of West Point, which was not very frequent, especially when we were plebes, you know, in the first year, but later, in the later years, you could get out of there more often. Um, You know, the place that you went, if you if if you weren't able to fly home to say Washington D.C. or something for a weekend, the place you went was New York City. So I became, you know, very very interested in, in New York. And and when when I was a plebe, our basketball team was a very very good basketball team. Bobby uh, Bobby Knight was the coach of the team. And Mike Shazewski, who's my classmate, was the team player coach uh, on the team. And so the West Point team got in the NITs, the National Invitational Tournament, every year. And the National Invitational Tournament was played in New York. So every time West Point got to play, we got to go to the game in New York City. And I wasn't very much interested in basketball, but I was very interested in going and listening to music and jazz and other stuff so whenever so we would be marched up to the uh, well in those days the old garden was still there yeah Uh, and um, to the garden where they would play basketball and I would just cut out and go down to the five spot or the cafe or go-go or wherever I wanted to go and and you know and listen to music. and and it was then that I got um, I, I got got a copy of the Village Voice on one of my trips to New York, and then I sent in a subscription thing and subscribed so that basically so I would get to know what was going on in the city, you know, so I could know who was playing and where they were playing and where the clubs were and all of that. And uh, but I started reading. And the Village Voice in 1965 and 66 and 67 was, you know, just thriving. And, it, you know, it was the 60s. What we think of as the 60s. You can imagine what was going on. The early days of feminism. Um,
0: Civil rights. You know, the Beatles.
2: <laughs> yeah. Everything. Everything was happening. And it yeah. was happening right there. And the Village Voice was covering it. So um, one day, I saw something in the voice that I disagreed with or something. I can't remember. And I wrote a letter to the editor of the Village Voice. And they ran it number one in the editor's column with my name under it. Lucian K. the 4th West Point, New York. (laughs) And um, that letter got 37 replies in the letters column. Wow. And the replies came from people like Dwight McDonald and Paul Goodman and Ari A. Nair and uh, all of these major public intellectuals and everything were, took me on. And there I was when I was 19 years old. And so the following week, I answered, you know, Paul Goodman and Dwight McDonald in the letters column.
0: Wow. And,
2: and uh, and that I was hooked, you know i i from that point forward it was nineteen sixty six I wrote what amount what amounted to a column in the letters column of the village voice i I wrote letters to the editor frequently, and they published them all and uh and to make a long story short in nineteen sixty eight during cr- the Christmas break, my parents were in Hawaii, and I couldn't afford to fly from New York to Hawaii for the Christmas break, so I went down to the city and stayed with a girlfriend of mine in the East Village on East Second Street. And uh, and during that time, I wrote a fairly long letter to the editor of the Voice about spending Christmas Day at the Electric Circus with the Hog Farm, believe it or not. <laughs> and, uh, and they took my letter to the editor and ran it on the front page as an article. Wow. And sent me a check for $80. And that was my first published article. And, uh, and that was, the, that was when I became a published paid writer. I didn't even know you got paid for writing. That's you still I, do I <laughs> yeah. Most reporters I, I didn't, still suffer there. In, uh, I didn't grow up. Uh. You know, taking creative writing courses and wanting to be a writer, you know what I mean? I mean, right. I grew up wanting to be in the army. And, uh, but I, you know, I became a writer. How by did, it's almost an accident.
0: How did your military mentality affect your writing?
2: Well, I I learned to write by virtue of the fact that I was an army brat and we got shipped around all over the country all over the world really and every time we moved um i would write letters to the kids that were at the army posts that i had left you know and they would write letters to me and uh you know girlfriends and friends and that sort of thing and uh it was writing those letters that taught me how to be a writer i mean uh the writing that I do right now in the column that I just wrote for Substack is no different than the letters that I wrote to kids that I knew in the 1950s and 60s, or no different than the writing I did in the Village Voice, really.
0: Any authors stick out in your mind that you liked, that you, uh, you read growing up, that you uh, admired? <laughs> In other words, who were your influences as writers?
2: I wouldn't really say that I had any influences because I, you know, I read everything. I, I didn't, you know, that's a question that I get all the time. Like, who is your favorite writer? or Who is your favorite rock star? Or who is your, you know, what, what is your influence or whatever? And I just don't have any favorites. You know, I read them all. And, uh, uh,
0: I won't ask you who your favorite rock star is, but I'll be more specific. Did you have a favorite Beatle?
2: A favorite what? Um uh, No. Huh? Really? No. Did you, yeah, yeah. Did you like them? Did you listen I to just, them? Yeah, I like the Beatles, but I mean, I was really a Rolling Stones fan. Ah. But, ah.
0: uh, but uh, I could have picked that. I should have picked that like one out. <laughs> So, what's your favorite Stone song? Do you have
2: one of those? No, no. All right. Well, let, I don't let, have let... My favorites. I mean, I you know, I I like so much of it. I mean, I like a bunch. I like a lot of songs that people haven't even heard off the first couple of Stones albums and that sort of thing. I mean, I you know, um, anyway.
0: That, let me let me skip forward then. When you were with the Village Voice tell me about stonewall covering that was had to be historic and you you can tell the story better than i
2: but well um i was uh on my leave after graduating from west point you got 60 days leave graduation leave before you went into the army Mm -hmm. so between june the 4th and august the 4th i had 60 days to burn and. my parents lived in Hawaii, like I said. And I, I didn't want to go to Hawaii. I didn't know anybody there. Um, but I did have a lot of friends in New York. So I went down and I rented a loft on a uh, sublet, a loft on Broom Street from a friend of mine that was a painter. And, uh, and I stayed there for two months. And while I was there, I wrote some articles for The Voice. And, one night in June, on June the 27th, uh, I was walking from my loft on Broom Street to the Lion's Head, the bar that's two doors down from the Village Voice, yeah. where all the writers from The Voice and everywhere else hung out. And, uh, and it was around 10 o'clock at night, and I just walked right smack into the Stonewall right I walked up Wimbledon Place and turned left on Christopher, and there it was. And, uh, you know, I was a neophyte writer, but even I could recognize a story. So, um, (laughs) What
0: what surprised you about that?
2: Uh, What what do you mean, what surprised
0: me? Well, I mean, when you walked into it, first of all, seeing a riot would surprise anyone, but the causes behind it, I mean, when you got to to see what it was, were you aware then how historic it was or, or or did that come into play later?
2: well, it that was on a Friday night around ten o'clock, and the riot lasted until Sunday, I mean not continue continuously, but there was a major conflict between the patrons of the stone wall and other gay people that were on the street on friday night when they busted the place and then saturday gay people showed up to protest the busting of the Stonewall, and there and there was a huge riot between the basically it was a police riot they're the ones that caused the riot and then of course it it went on and it wasn't so much of a of a riot on Sunday, but this the, the protest went on until Sunday. And, um, you know, I, I started getting an inkling of, that it was historic on Saturday when I started hearing gay people on the street sh- shouting gay pride and gay power. And, wow. you know, gay pride, you know, pride and power were two words used by the Black Panthers. So, um, you could tell that, you know, I could tell that a movement was starting. And in fact, my story in the Village Voice that I wrote on Sunday night, uh, which ran in the Wednesday paper, was the first place that the words gay power and gay pride appeared in print. Wow. So, um, but I, I can't claim that I was prescient and I knew I could, you know, I sort of, I, I knew that it was historic and all that other stuff. I didn't, but um, but I did understand that busts happened at gay bars in the village all the time. This was fairly well known, even if you were a straight male that had just graduated from West Point. What, what was brand new was that that the. The patrons of the Stonewall, who were almost uniformly very young, and yeah. um, and from the outer boroughs in New Jersey and so forth, not from these were not people that had apartments in Greenwich Village. They, right. They were people who came into the city to be gay, essentially. Right. Uh, and uh, what was new was that 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 they they wouldn't take it. You know, the, the, the way the cops did those things were they waded into gay bars and busted heads. And they, they in fact, in that, in that bar, the Stonewall that night, they took bats, baseball bats, and broke all the liquor bottles, the mirrors behind the bar. They broke up everything in there, the cigarette machine, the stereo equipment, everything. And and then they arrested a bunch of patrons. They didn't arrest the guys that owned the Stonewall, who were uh, mobsters from the DiMartino family, as it happened. <laughs> but um, but they arrested all these patrons, and these young gay guys. They didn't have jobs, and they didn't live in, you know, four room duplexes on West 12th street and stuff. They, they didn't have anything to lose, you know, and, um, and they stood up to the cops and threw rocks and, you know, picked up paving stones and everything else and broke out the windows of the stonewall and rioted. You know, they said, we're not going to take it. And, uh, and that caused the police that were busting the stonewall to call for Reinforcements and then reinforcements came in, squad cars, and they scattered the crowd and and uh, you know and then the same thing happened the next night except they called in the tactical patrol force who had helmets and shields and all of that and and it got pretty bloody and and pretty violent with um um tear gas and everything.
0: Did you you ever fear for your own safety? Hmm? Did you ever fear for your own safety?
2: No, well, I had been trained in riot control as a cadet. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> oh, you were cadet. right at home. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's I ah, you know, just, what I just was another do. Friday night. <laughs> well, well me... I sort of, you know, I I recognized a riot, and I I knew how to, you know, I knew to keep away from guys with nightsticks, and yeah, you know. You know, so um, you know a funny, I mean a funny story, is that when I got in the army, in in August, in October I was assigned to Fort Carson, Colorado, and give, and I was a platoon leader, and one of the first things that jobs that they gave me there was to teach classes uh, to the soldiers in the company you know on like the submachine gun and the, you know the M16 rifle and it was right. a mechanized company so we were teaching classes on you know servicing 113 engines and shit like that but one of the classes i was assigned to teach was riot control so they gave me this um <laughs> a field manual an fm you know fm 222-3 <laughs> riot control you know <laughs> and uh, and they said, trust God go teach that class. So I you know, went you know we had a room in the company where we taught classes where you could seat like a hundred guys. And of course what happened in most of those classes were some of the classes were things like high, personal hygiene and personal finances and God only knows what you know. And all these guys would just get in these chairs and go to sleep. So um, my thing was um, I wasn't going to have guys sleeping in my class. Right. So I tended to teach these classes in a fairly animated way. And what I did to teach this class was I got a big blackboard. And I drew a map on the blackboard of Sheridan Square. Oh, wow. And, uh, I mean, I... You know, I knew what Sheridan Square looked like in my mind, and so I copied down Waverly Place and the, you know, the the Northern Dispensary and the Stonewall and the Village Voice building and Grove Street and, you know, all of that stuff. I drew a map of the of Sheridan Square, and then I I got up and taught the class as I said. I'm supposed to teach you about how to do riot control, so in order to to teach it, I'm going to teach you how not to do it. (laughs) And this is what happened during the Stonewall Riot, and so I taught the Stonewall Riot. Well, (laughs) the captain that that ran the company watched this, this class I taught, and everybody was awake, and there was quite a bit of laughter, and you know, and I was sort of acting out what happened between the cops and these gay guys and everything. And the captain went and got this colonel and brought him to watch this class. I mean, you know, there were awake soldiers there, you know, yeah. actually staying awake during a boring class. And so the colonel, the colonel said, uh, well, we want you to teach this class to the battalion. And so they went and got a, an old army, you know, World War II style wood frame movie theater that was not in use, and turned this movie theater over to me. Wow. And, and gave me an even larger blackboard on which I drew another map of Sheridan Square. And so I, I after teaching it to the company I taught it to the battalion. Well, the battalion commander was so excited that he had this lieutenant in his battalion that could actually do something. He had the commanding general come to the, to the battalion class to watch. And the commanding general got all excited and said, well, we're just going to send battalions in here and you're going to teach the whole division. So I taught division riot control one <laughs> battalion at a time, based on the Stonewall riot. and and how poorly it was done, <laughs> and, or, and 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 how fucked up it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, That's so what? that was you wanted to know how my journalism and how my experience in the military intersected. Well,
0: there there's there it a good is. Example. Well, and that leads me to you know you have uh, written five books, novels, uh, Dress Gray I've read, uh, and these have been made into movies. What 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 drove you to write? And, and it's really well done. I mean, what and and if you haven't read them, read them. I won't give anything away. But what what drove you to write it? Was it your ex- personal experience that led you there?
2: No, what drove me to write Dress Gray was. The two years previous to when I wrote Dress Gray, I wrote Dress Gray in 77, and the two years previous to that, I had quit the Village Voice in 75, and I basically just went on the road as a magazine buyer for two years. And when I was doing my taxes in 1977, I, I had a diary where I kept all of my receipts and travel receipts and all that stuff so I was going through all that stuff to do my taxes and I just decided I would add up the number of days that i had been on the road and it and it came out to be 250 wow so um I was I knew I'd been traveling a lot but I had a loft in New York on West Houston Street I had a girlfriend that I lived with and I just was never there you know Mm -hmm. And uh, so I just decided um, that I, I had to do something basically where I remember uh, telling my girlfriend, I want to sit down. You know, I'm tired of being on airplanes and tired of renting cars. and I'm tired of going in and interviewing people that don't want to talk to me. Because I was always given these assignments like, You know, go out and do a story on the mob in Kansas City or something. Well, you go to Kansas City and nobody wants to talk to you. (laughs) Yeah. You you had to write a story. I see you've worked worked for some of the editors
0: I worked for, I take it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I never, I was never assigned a story to go interview a movie star. You know, I was always assigned a a story where the people that I would have to interview didn't even want to know I was in the same state they were. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, you know, so I was tired of it, and uh, and I had had an editor, at Doubleday, who'd been after me for several years to write a book, and um, this is a funny story. So, um,
0: uh, we like good funny stories. Go for it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I I had had a Alicia Patterson Foundation grant in '74, I think it was. To do or 75. I can't, no, 70, 75, to do a, a study of my class at West Point, because my class at West Point, 50% of the class had resigned from the Army on a single day, wow. basically because of the war in Vietnam. And so I convinced the Alicia Patterson Foundation to give me a grant. And I and I went off to interview guys in my class and, you know, and write these reports that I wrote for the Alicia Patterson Foundation. But anyway, uh, my editor at Doubleday had read them. So she said, well, Lucian, why don't you write a book about, you know, your class at West Point? You've already done the research and everything. So I went up to her, she took me out to lunch one day and I went back to her office and and she called her secretary in, and while I was there in the office, they got out a contract for a novel, or not for a novel, for a book, for a nonfiction book uh, about my class at West Point. And basically, with those contracts, all they had to do was fill in the name of the book and your name and how and much, much money, money they were, how much money they were going to advance you and the other shit, and I didn't have a an agent, you know, but I could read a contract. So I sat down in her office the same day and read the contract, and I saw that Doubleday had an indemnity clause that was just outrageous. Basically, Doubleday had you indemnify them and anybody that they ever knew and everything else, and and they were able to cut you loose from the defense of the book and let you defend yourself against any lawsuits and then if double day loss then they could collect any money that they got in a judgment from you so so i said well i can't sign this call, you know indemnity clause i this contract is outrageous and she said, well, I know it is, but, you know, this is boilerplate and every publisher has a, a contract like this. And they didn't have them quite as bad as Doubleday, but that was fairly true. So I just said, well, I'm not going to sign the contract. And, uh, and I said, I'm sorry, you know. And I, I started to walk out of the room. And Just as I got to the door of her office, she called to me. And um, she had this kind of high-pitched voice, like, Lucian, have you ever thought about writing a novel? And I turned around and looked at her and said, No, I haven't really. And she said, Well, if you if you wrote a novel, Lucian, what would you write? And so, just for the hell of it, I said, Well, how about a gay murder at West Point? <laughs> she said. She, her entire look and her voice and everything changed. And she said, get back over here and sign this contract. <laughs> and I said, but, I said, but Betty, it's a contract for a nonfiction book about the West Point class of 69. She said, you let me worry about what the contract says. You won't, the indemnity clause won't, won't give you a problem if you write a novel. You, you're not going to be libeling anybody, right? So, so you know, you let me worry about it and uh, and I'll get you the money. And she's and I said, Well, I don't know about this, and she said, I'll get you half the money today. And I said, oh. Okay, I'll do it. God bless. So, I walked out of there with a check for I don't know, five grand or something, and uh. And I the rest home. is history. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I went home, and then that weekend, I, I drove out to Sag Harbor and looked for a house to rent, and I rented a house. And starting on uh, Memorial Day weekend in 1977, I started writing Dress Gray, and I finished it in November.
0: Wow. That is fascinating. And w- with that, we're going to take another short break. We'll be right
1: back. Hi,
0: we're back. It's just asked the question. And with me is author, reporter, uh, and, and military brat, <laughs> Lucian Truscott. And Lucian, I guess as we finish this evening, and I look, man, I could I could talk about this stuff all night long. I, I want to know what your thoughts are about uh how the military and journalists get along. And as preface that, I'm gonna tell you my own it briefly story about where I where I came to be upset with the military because I think they screwed themselves out of a out of a great deal. Um, and that was in the Gulf War. And I, I covered the first Gulf War. And I remember being they tried to keep us so hard from. And if you remember that it was before you were actually embedded, but we had to have uh, we had to have chaperones to go with us. And there was a lot of pool busting as reporters would break through the you know the pool and go out on their own to cover stuff and the military who had taken which had taken a a huge hit after the Vietnam War and there were still people that were scared and I mean so many of the people that I talked to were fearful in the military of being you know this is a very large military buildup, the largest since the Vietnam War and they were afraid that the uh, press would turn on them and treat them like, uh, had happened during Vietnam. Now, of course it, it didn't happen and it wasn't a protracted affair. And there was only four days of, of ground war. But I remember at one point in time, actually it, it made me so proud to be an American to see what the military did. And I was walking through the streets of Kuwait and people were, there was pro American graffiti and there, there were people that would, you know, take me aside and 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 say, you know, "Listen, I want to make, a, you know, a meal for you. Come to my home and have a meal. You don't know what we've been through, and and you all saved us." And I, I just, it was one, it was the inability to tell those stories, those very human stories during the Gulf War, because the military was so scared of what the press would do. And I guess the question is. Is there a better way for the military to handle the media, or a better way for the media to handle the military in hot zones, particularly, but uh, on a day-to-day basis in general?
2: Well, um, you know, I think things changed a lot after the Gulf War. Is you know, in in the Iraq War, they did embed soldiers with. Yeah, units and so forth, and and that, you know, you were able to write, you know, whatever you wanted to write, which was, I think, a, a better idea. Um, but, you know, there's. And then uh, I I was in Afghanistan, and in Afghanistan, the local commander in Kandahar went back to the gulf war one thing of having every journalist have a an escort and and you know i was told that i had to hand if i wanted to talk to a soldier i had to hand in my questions to the soldier written down on a piece of paper to the public affairs officer before i interviewed the soldier wow which was absurd and i told him it was absurd and then the next thing I knew I was on a plane back to Kabul, but um, so that didn't work too well but um I think there's always going to be an essential conflict between mil- the military command or soldiers in general, I guess, and journalists because ju- because journalists are inherently skeptical and not prone to believe. What they're told at first blush, and you know military commanders don't really like that. and um, <laughs> and soldiers uh, don't really like it either. so it's there's always going to be a a friction between journalists and and the military. Um, I don't there are ways to get around it, you know. Uh, but uh, the best stuff I ended up getting in um, Afghanistan, however, came once they had yanked my press credentials and all of that stuff. And so I was, I still had to write something. So I went out to the uh, border with Pakistan in the Kunar Valley by myself, I mean, with a driver and a translator, and uh, and you know, I never saw. I did see a couple of V convoys go by at high speed, and I saw some helicopters fly overhead. But for for days, I never saw any American military guys. But I did see a lot of Afghans, and uh, and and I found that 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 was a far better way to cover a conflict. Yes, be, you know, wearing a helmet and a and a goddamn flag vest, and yes. be surrounded by twenty guys carrying, you know, M4s or M16s. Yeah, you know, and that, you know, the local people talked to me and would, you know, would basically tell me anything. And yeah. it was the local people that were. Let's call it the victims of that war. So yes. that's where the story was, you know. So uh, were we right to get out of there after twenty years? Absolutely, we should have. You know, I was I was asked while while I was in Iraq and while I was in Afghanistan. So uh, I was with some soldiers briefly in Kandahar for about forty-eight hours, and all of these, and, and I did see soldiers. You know because I got away from my handler. Um, but um, Good for you, all these soldiers would always ask me, you know, what should we do? How what should we get out of How do we get out of here? And everything, and my answer was always, well, how did you get here? And and you know, when I was with the 101st in, in Iraq, they said, well, you know, we drove up up here to. To um, uh, northern Iraq in our Humvees, and I said, "Well, the way you get out of here is you turn the Humvees around south and drive on the same roads you came in on, and go back to where you came from. That's how you get out of here." And they and they and all and then these colonels and generals and shit would say, "Well, what's going to happen if we leave? If we leave, though, blah blah blah," and I'd say they'll go back to what they were doing before. The Sunnis and the Shiites hate each other, so they're going to be fighting each other. And in Afghanistan, it was, you know, the Pashtuns are going to be coming over the border from, from Pakistan or just down the hills from the mountains and fighting for control of the cities like uh and Jalalabad and Cookman. You know, exactly yeah, exactly what happened for the next 21 years and for 21 years that was what was going on yeah and I, we were in the middle of it
0: yeah and well and i remember inter- interviewing a father and a son who had both served in afghanistan imagine that two generations of american soldiers serving in the same location and the father was telling the son but you gotta go here you gotta go there this is this this is that I I I can't I can't imagine having two generations of of Americans fighting over there for 20, like you said, 21 years. Yeah. Lightning. Well, thank you so much for this, Lucian. This has been a for me a very fascinating conversation, and I hope for our listeners as well, because it is. <laughs> And it's a, a bit of history. If you if you look at uh, the U.S. and where where we are now, you have are you do you have hope or are you worried?
2: I'm worried. Um, I think that this. I think Trump is a problem, but Trumpism, um, which is Republicanism right now, is fascism. yeah fa- fascism. It's a, is a major problem for in this country. And uh and I have grave concerns about what's going to happen over the next 3 years and and then what'll happen beyond that?
0: Do you think our democracy survives?
2: I think so, but I think that it's going to be a real struggle.
0: Uh, I, and, I agree.
2: Uh, and I think that I just don't think that people in this country understand what happens if you if you get the kind of conflict that is ongoing, political conflict that's ongoing in this country right now. Um, they don't understand where this can lead. I mean, look at the last you know few months that, Biden administration wasn't able to pass any version whatsoever of the Build Back Better plan, which is the only legislation that's been written in, I don't know, a couple of yeah that it, To address these entrenched problems in this country, I mean, they did manage to get through the infrastructure plan that, you know, because we've gone through 30 or 40 years of not even touching these bridges and roads.
0: I know. They didn't
2: I... even need to do that, but, but if, you, if you get a, a, a party like like the Republicans are right now, where Biden said the other night, what are they for? Well, I can tell them what they're for. They're for the end of abortion, they're therefore, cutting taxes on billionaires and millionaires and therefore allowing pollution and, and so forth to go on long enough that, that the global warming is just gonna make this, this world uninhabitable. That's what they're for. And I just don't think people have any clue how bad the recalcitrance of this party And it's in and its unwillingness to do anything to accomplish anything can get this 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 could lead very quickly, very suddenly, to a serious depression. And we wouldn't need a civil war. We wouldn't need a civil war if there was the kind of depression that we had in the thirties to destroy things in this country. I mean, we really wouldn't.
0: No. And that would be, but that would be very frightening on many levels. Yeah. <laughs> and with that fine, happy note, <laughs> <laughs> listen, I appreciate you being here. Would you come back and talk with us again sometime?
2: Sure. Just let me know when you want, when you want to do it.
0: Sounds good. The name of the show is just ask the question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Uh Thanks for being here tonight, Lucian. And thanks
1: for listening.